This is Fortune's Wheel, the podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Your time is your greatest currency, and this fact of life does not go unnoticed by the creators on whom you spend your time. So thank you for spending your time listening and learning along with me on this podcast. Please note that the best growth tool for podcasts like this one is word of mouth. If you believe in what's being said and strived for here, please consider pushing this out to all corners of your social media, as well as leaving a five-star review, multiple even, on whatever podcast service you use. Links for the podcast are in the show notes. Also, I've recently uploaded the newest Patreon members-only episode, entitled Ground Zero Jerusalem, in which I give a pretty comprehensive history of the holy city that seems to have been, and still today to be, at the center of everything. I encourage you to head over to Patreon and consider supporting the show, where you'll have access to this episode as well as all other bonus content published there, including an entire season of episodes focusing on medieval Poland during the 11th century. On this episode, we see how the Eastern Roman Empire fared under the scholar emperor Constantine X Ducas, but his days, as are all of ours, are numbered. His son was set to assume the crown, but something happened that would affect not only this peaceful transition of power from father to son, but also every single year that the empire had left. This episode, episode 106, is entitled Eudokia's Vow. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. When Michael Sellis stood by the side of his best friend, Constantine Ducas, as the man accepted the robe and those cute ruby-red slippers and became Emperor Constantine X, he no doubt must have smiled inwardly and thought, there really is no place like home. Home was not so much Constantinople as it was the great palace, the place where the philosopher, as the previous emperor endearingly referred to him, had risen through the ranks through some of the more turbulent times in the empire's history to be at a place where, again, he was standing alongside his closest and dearest friend as the man became emperor. I don't believe there was a jealous bone in the man's body either. Neither Constantine X nor Michael Sellis. And if there was, Sellis hit it well. Like, professionally well. Michael Sellis was as far as I can tell, entirely content with being a backseat driver to the empire. He had the emperor's ear for three emperors now. He'd weathered storms that would have resulted in many others being exiled at best. He couldn't have imagined a better, more comfortable scenario than the one laid out before him then in 1059. Isaac I Komnenos got a bellyache and retired to a monastery, but not before naming his BFF emperor. What's more is that Michael Sellis was most assuredly going to remain, in essence, what amounted to the Byzantine Prime Minister. The power, really, lies in his hands. But who is this new emperor anyway? We haven't heard anything about him so far in the podcast, and he seemingly came out of nowhere. 
Well, the thing is, he kind of did come out of nowhere. Constantine X, as we've said, is a member of the highly prestigious and historically influential Dukai family. His relatives and ancestors were renowned and respected members of the military, largely, although many of them had promising careers as politicians. Constantine, however, felt more at home in a library than a battlefield. And fair enough. If you ask me, it takes all kinds to make a society work. But there's something to be said for a person with military acumen at the head of a nation, kingdom, empire, or heck, even a tribe or a family. Speaking of family, though, Constantine X was a model family man, which wasn't exactly odd for the day. Fathers throughout history have gotten somewhat of a bad rap, if you ask me. But to have it written about says that he was more so the quote-unquote dad than others were, it seemed. In fact, the time he spent with his children was a bit out of ordinary in a good way. His wife, Eudokia, was the niece of the former patriarch Michael Cerularius. That's right, the man behind not only the usurpation of Isaac I Komnenos, but also the target of Pope Leo IX's Great Schism in 1054. Eudokia gave birth to a number of children. Michael Dukas, in his early 20s, when Dad took the crown, well, he'll be seen in our story shortly, but is almost instantly named Junior Emperor under his father. Anne Dukas, who we unfortunately know don't know much about, and Dronikos Dukas, also anglicized as Adrian Dukas, who wouldn't be named Junior Emperor for unknown reasons, though. Theodora Dukas, who would solidify an insanely important alliance in just a couple years from now. Zoe Dukas, who in her early teens in 1059 was already betrothed to Adrian Komnenos in order to keep those long-standing familial bonds strong. And finally, there was Constantine Dukas, a little surprise baby who was born after Constantine X became emperor meaning he was truly a porphyrogenitus, born in the purple, and thus being named junior emperor by default almost. Beyond his family, though, Constantine Ducas was more likely found debating philosophy and law than doing anything else. This scholarly reputation, along with his pedigree, led him straight to the role of president of the Senate, the topmost position for career politicians. John Carr, in his book, The Komneni Dynasty, says, quote, If we may risk a bold generalization, Constantine X believed in conciliation rather than confrontation. He abhorred violence, refusing to inflict floggings or blindings where it was his privilege to decree them. End quote. In another place, Carr continued, quote, Selos claims there were no executions in his seven-year reign. End quote. So that's pretty much who Constantine X Ducas was heading into his reign as emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, beginning again in late November of 1059. He was well-known and well-respected around political circles, but when it came to the military, well, he was an outsider, more of the same, a copy of a copy of a copy that had led to the rebellion of 1057 in the first place. Remember that pipe dream? The one of that the Byzantine military men had about having a quote-unquote soldier emperor. They finally achieved it with Isaac Komnenos, 
but he was now out, living his best life a short boat ride outside of town. In their eyes, they found themselves right back where they started. And unfortunately, as appealing as Constantine X was to the mass of people, to the military, he would fulfill their prophecy of further degradation to the imperial army. He immediately, at the behest of Michael Sellis, mind you, he immediately began swelling the ranks of the imperial bureaucracy, filling it to the breaking point with diplomats, paper pushers, and errand boys. No task was too small to create a position for. But as we know, basic physics tells us that balance will always be strived for, and basic economics tells us that for every give, there is a take from somewhere else. So, with a bloating bureaucracy being created, another facet of the empire must naturally suffer. And what do you think that facet was? That's right. It was the military. These strains were beginning to be felt in the outskirts of the empire almost immediately. We're talking a matter of maybe weeks. Not only were the empire's enemies already pressing in on the southern and eastern borders, but Constantine's resources were diverted toward Constantinople's bureaucracy and away from protecting its borders. He simply didn't quite understand the threat that lay out there. The threat in question was the band of people from the Central Asian steppes called the Turks. Now, Turks were a not-so-distantly-related, genetically speaking anyway, to the Mongols, currently rising up against the Chinese in the mid-11th century. They had a fairly similar language and shared many of the same religious beliefs as their Mongol kinsmen. Carr says the following about the Turks, quote, Related to the Mongols, they typified the highly patriarchal nomadic tribes of those regions, whose social systems favored the periodic rise of powerful leader figures. The Turks were led by a Kagan, who ruled over a layer of lesser Khans who in turn dominated a submissive populace. Their religion was shamanistic, heavily dependent on a variety of nature spirits, both good and evil. End quote. Now, with things getting a little hairy at home, they decided to cast off in another direction, west, and see what they would find. Well, what they found was a land impossibly wealthy and impossibly connected. The fabled Silk Road was one thing, but when they saw the towns and cities and the roads connecting the Eastern Roman Empire and the, and the Holy Land and way out in the deserts of modern-day Iraq, they began to see the possibilities that lay before them. They were a fast-moving people, much like their Mongol cousins, who spent their days on horseback. So when they began creeping across the high plateaus and grassy plains of Anatolia, they found the absolute perfect replacement for what they'd just left out east. Anatolia was, I say again, it was perfect. And these Turks wanted it. They descended their native plateaus and found a vibrant world and lush landscapes full of people who looked very different than themselves, but also very different from each other. The shades of their skins, the shapes of their eyes and noses, their heights and statures and hair. These Turks found new languages and new products, new riches and new foods. These Turks, they also found two once mighty but currently floundering empires. The Abbasids out of Baghdad 
and the Eastern Roman Empire out of Constantinople. And like all civilizations throughout world history, they quickly ask themselves, well, what about us? Or more appropriately, why not us? One of their first major leaders, in fact, the man who established what would become the Seljuk Empire, was an Oghuz Turk named Tugrul Bey. This guy was the one who conquered Baghdad and upended the rule of the Abbasid Caliphs, or excuse me, the Abbasid Caliphs there. As a matter of course, and not some spiritual calling, like most leaders in history, to be honest, Tugrul Bey converted to Islam as an appeasement strategy to win over his overwhelmingly large population of Muslims within his new realm, and it seemed to do the trick. However, in the year 1053 or 1054, Tugrul Bey died, and there was only one man who could possibly take his place, and his name was Alp Arslan. Now, Alp Arslan was also a Muslim convert, and one hell of a warrior. But he was also a scholar who enjoyed the arts as well, not to mention a capable administrator. He seemed to be all the things Constantinople was looking for in one man. They hadn't had one of those since Emperor Basil II. Now, as for their near future, they would have the warrior part in Isaac I Komnenos in 1057. Constantine X Dukas held down the scholar part beginning in 1059. And they wouldn't have an economics brain wearing the crown until maybe the early 1070s, depending on how you felt about the, the emperor at that time. Alp Arslan, though? Alp Arslan had it all. And he was the new sultan of the Seljuk Turks as of, say, 1054. So, as the Seljuks were mourning the passing of a decent sultan and welcoming in as sultan one of the more capable men of his day, Remember, in 1054, relations between Constantinople and Rome took an irrevocable turn for the worse, resulting in the excommunication of the Patriarch of Constantinople and a rift in Christianity that has lasted for more than 900 years now and counting. To think that Alparslan wasn't aware of such instability is pretty short-sighted, if you ask me. Alparslan began pushing into Anatolia more and more throughout Constantine X's reign, which was throughout the early to mid-1060s. His mere presence exacerbated an already bad situation in Armenia. See, during the earlier reign of Constantine IX, Monomachus, the emperor had disbanded the entire Byzantine garrison in arguably the most strategically important regions in all of the Eastern Roman Empire. I'm not exactly exaggerating here either. Armenia was vastly important to Constantinople and even boasted one of the largest cities in all of Asia, the Middle East, and Europe at the time. So after disbanding the soldiers years later, Constantine X Dukas added salt to the wound and defunded the entire Armenian fighting force currently straining to hold back the onslaught of Turks descending out of their highlands. This is the backdrop for Eastern Rome's last remaining hold on Armenia. As Alparslan tested the borders, poking and prodding for weaknesses, of which he found many, there came a time when a statement had to be made. This statement came in 1064, in the Armenian city called Ani. 
Due to the lack of funding, the garrisons were virtually non-existent, but many regular men took turns manning the perimeter in an effort to offset the lack of soldiers until something more permanent could be done. Unfortunately, this quote-unquote solution never came. The Eastern Roman Empire had left the Armenians out on their own, and when an army of Seljuk Turks approached, well, everyone knew what was going to happen, but the Armenians weren't people to shy away easily. The men manned the walls and were ready to make the Turks earn the city. As the story goes, a governor of Annie had also been hoarding some of the scant income that was leaking into the city, money that was specifically meant for building up the city's walls. Annie was small, but it was densely populated, and it commanded a certain amount of respect as a commercial hub in the region, that is, the region of Armenia and Georgia today. Alp Arslan knew this, and he scouted the city's walls before pushing ahead. His scouts told him of a poorly manned and weak section of the walls, and Alp Arslan immediately pounced. They poured into the city before anyone knew what was happening, and took the city with very, very little fighting. And with that, Armenia fell to the Turks. The strain on the eastern Byzantine borders had now become incalculably worse. Strategically, the loss of Annie, well, it hurt. It hurt bad. But Alp Arslan had a much more strategic prize on his hands at the moment. Though Anatolia, as I said, was prime real estate for a horse culture like the mighty Turkish bands, well, Alp Arslan had to take a longer view of things. His kinsman, Tukrul Bey, had risked everything and successfully taken Baghdad, ending the Abbasid Caliphate for all intents and purposes. Why couldn't he do the same for the Fatimid dynasty based in Cairo? I mean, now that he was Muslim, Jerusalem and the surrounding roads and towns and coastlines had their importance ratcheted up from merely strategically and economically good things to possess. But now it had a religious component to it for Alpar's land and his Turks. A rather powerful religious draw, I might add, and Jerusalem was currently owned by the Fatimid Caliphs in Cairo. Alparslan wanted not only Jerusalem, but he wanted Cairo as well. He wanted sole ownership of all Muslim lands from central North Africa, through the Holy Land, and up into Anatolia, while all the while securing as far inland as Baghdad. Alparslan had plans. So as Duke William of Normandy stormed across the English Channel to lay waste to what would be his new Kingdom of England, and as Constantine X, Ducas, began to get the first stirrings of the illness that would kill him by May of the following year, in the year 1066 or so, Alparslan had firmly squared his shoulders toward Cairo, beginning with the northernmost Fatimid city, Aleppo, in modern-day Syria. As Constantine X lay ill in his palatial bedroom, Alp Arslan had eased himself off of Anatolia for the time being, but the empire was still being pressured on the other side of the Bosporus, and it was by another group of Turks who took the northern route down from the Central Asian steppes. They had split before, and these Turks were called the Oguz Turks, the same band of Turks that Tugrul Bey had separated from decades earlier. And just a little clarity on that, Tugrul Bey, Alp Arslan, 
I mean, at this point, they were Seljuks. But what had happened was the Oghuz Turks and other bands of Turks basically separated and went their way amicably, as far as I can tell. There was no ill will. And as far as I can tell, Alp Arslan can still considered himself an Oghuz Turk, uh, at least familially. But decades earlier, both Tugrul Bey and Alp Arslan's families had broken off with a warlord uh, called Seljuk, actually, <laughs> who gives the name uh, the empire its name. So these northern Oghuz Turks were on peaceful terms with these Seljuks, as I said, but they were by no means on friendly terms with them. That said, the Oghuz Turks began pressuring the Pechenegs and Bulgarians south into Macedonia, fraying the nerves of Byzantines everywhere. Before anyone knew it, the Oghuz Turks actually threatened the growing commercial hub of Belgrade. The beginnings of this Asian invasion were the very events that led Emperor Isaac I Komnenos to head out to the field, if you remember, and chase the encroaching Pechenegs and Bulgars back up north. But think of it from their point of view. The Pechenegs and the Bulgars, they were running south away from the invading Turks. And now the Byzantine emperor was chasing them back into the spears and scimitars of those same Turks. The Pechenegs and Bulgars were in a lose-lose situation there. So with the Turks providing plenty of nightmare fuel for the Eastern Roman Empire, and Constantine X falling ill, the empire was beginning to crack once again. And it finally got to the point where the much-beloved emperor was targeted. His one-time friends turned on him, and a plot was hatched that sought his assassination by sinking his personal ship sailing up the Golden Horn around the capital city. Luckily for the emperor, the plot was found out, broken up, and true to character, instead of beheading the traitors, which is probably what everybody else would have done, Constantine X sent the men into exile and even cried about it later. Carr writes, quote, Even then the emperor confessed to feeling sorry for them, weeping during a private dinner with Celis over how they must be suffering away from their homes while he was banqueting. End quote. But as Carr warns us, it would be a mistake to misunderstand Constantine X's humility and mercy and empathy for weakness. Constantine did actually take to the field of battle against a joint force of northern barbarians, that is, the Pechenegs, the Bulgars, you know the drill. But we know next to nothing about that campaign, except that he made it back to the capital safely. The success, the records imply, imply rather strongly, is much less due to Constantine's military acumen and more to the generals in the field. But kudos for Constantine for, keep, er, for, you know, for giving it the old college try. Besides the loss of Annie and Constantine X's defeat of the northern Pechenegs and Bulgars, the main issue, speaking from a historical standpoint with regards to the fate of the empire, that is, the main issue was the slow degradation of the front lines of the borders happening all over the empire due to military neglect and mismanagement. I keep coming back to that, but I keep coming back to it for a reason. In October 1066, Constantine X Dukas was recorded as becoming slightly ill. In November, it was recorded that he hadn't changed much, that he was still sick. By the Christmas holidays, Around the time Duke William was officially crowned the new King of England outside of London, Constantine X 
got much, much worse. And it was then that we began to see Michael Sellis' writing change ever so slightly. He has a whisper of panic and urgency in his tone when he was once overly indulgent in describing his bestie, the emperor, the philosopher, chronicler, and chief advisor to three emperors now, had weathered all of this court intrigue, specifically in the role he was currently enjoying over the previous three emperors. The man was remarkably adaptive, Celis. He was remarkably persuasive, and he was m- remarkably resilient. No one can deny Michael Celis those things, but he had another emperor who was not looking all too great at the moment, and he couldn't possibly afford to leave this particular succession up to chance. He'd come too far. As for Emperor, there was only one option. And he wasn't exactly sure about his relationship quite yet with this young man. His name was Michael Dukas, and he was the grown son of Constantine X. Now, Celis needed to ensure that Michael was the Emperor next, and in the process he had to get out in front of it and make it known that his support swung firmly to Michael upon the death of Constantine X. It's rumored that he was behind the emperor's decision to force his wife, Eudokia, to publicly swear, to make a vow, that she would never remarry after his passing. Eudokia agreed and swore publicly, even with the powerful patriarch of Constantinople in the audience. Without the Augusta remarrying, Michael Sellis could confidently sit and await the inevitable, knowing He had helped the new emperor rise to the throne, once again assuring him a place at the highest of Byzantine positions. Now, Michael Dukas was a pretty likable guy, widely popular, especially in the capital, and he had the name Dukai to boot, which also helped. There was no conceivable way, with Eudokia off the market for a new husband, that an outsider would even pretend to emerge to challenge the emperor's son for legitimacy. Barring the fact that his very good friend Constantine lay dying, Celis was sitting in a good place at the moment. He could simply step in for the emperor as much as possible and make some decisions to keep the empire, you know, chugging along while, the spending, while spending quality time with the emperor while he slowly wasted away in bed. It was May of 1067 when the end came for Constantine X Ducas. Michael Dukas was ready to become Emperor Michael VII Dukas. Except for one person. One person had other plans. And it happened to be Eudokia, Michael's own mother. Upon Constantine X's death, Eudokia immediately grabbed power and declared that she was the supreme ruler, the Empress Regnant of the Eastern Roman Empire, and her son would just have to wait. Her reasoning, of course, was that she was protecting her son as long as she could before he was ready to become emperor. But with her next few moves, her real plans were revealed. Young Michael, who was like 20 at the time, by the way, had no place in those plans. And strangely, there's no recorded defense, as far as I can tell, of Michael putting up any sort of protection of his right to the crown. 
I mean, I wish I had more to say about it, but Michael just seemed to play the lazy, you know, the lazy teenager role and stay locked in his bedroom with the curtains drawn, cranking up the volume on his headphones, you know, the cure blasting in his ears. Mommy issues, am I right? But 1067 showed Eudokia that being the supreme leader was far trickier than it seemed. I mean, here in America, there's a reason why our president leaves four or even eight years later, having looked like they'd aged a few decades. Have you seen some of those pictures? No one in their right mind would seek that job. Well, which is probably explains those who we elect, but that's another discussion altogether. Seriously, though, I, I don't envy them and the pressures they experience day in and day out. And Eudokia learned very quickly that she might have placed herself in a position where she was just completely in over her head. She admittedly needed help, so she broke her promise to Constantine X to never remarry. The problem wasn't just the breaking of a vow and completely screwing over your son who was the rightful heir to the throne. Believe it or not, that isn't the real problem here. No, see, the problem, the real problem, was that she was not only breaking a vow to her husband, but since the patriarch of Constantinople was present when she made said vow, she was also breaking a vow with him and all the clergy that were with him. Who witnessed it. And that, that was a pretty big deal. Carr writes, quote, Therefore she did her research in great secrecy, not even telling Celis, although it was common knowledge throughout the court. She soon won over the Senate by arguing that the vow she had made was basically unfair, in that it was detrimental to the welfare of the state, hence morally invalid, end quote. And the man she had settled upon was apparently a major hottie with his flashing smile and his broad shoulders. He came from a distinguished Byzantine family. But who cares? It's said that when Eudokia laid eyes on him for the first time, she cried because he was so beautiful. Who was this guy anyway? Well, about a year earlier, a man was stationed with a battalion who patrolled the far northwestern borderlands of the empire. And this man... His name was Romanus Diogenes, and Romanus Diogenes was apparently unhappy with his leaderships for reasons we don't exactly know. What we do know is that he participated in a coup against the commanding officer, or officers, and was thrown hastily into a frontier jail. Not a place anybody would want to be. As Eudokia scrambled to look for a suitor, someone who could take the military matters off her hands, it turns out that... Alp Arslan led thousands of Seljuk Turks the 600-plus miles from Ani in Armenia to the central Anatolian city of Caesarea, today Kayseri, Turkey. Alp Arslan didn't just travel. He blazed a terrifying trail of destruction and death and then ruthlessly sacked Caesarea, burning it to the ground. It was in this climate that Eudokia narrowed her search for someone with military prowess. And in walks into our story, the jailed beefcake himself, Romanus Diogenes, who admittedly, by all counts, did actually have a remarkable record as an officer and a soldier, and was pretty well respected around the Byzantine military circles. So far as Eudokia saw it, it was either Romanus married her, or he died. So what about Michael Dukas? What was he thinking about all of this? 
Well, he knew nothing, actually, uh, except Mom was the Empress. He knew nothing until one morning when Eudokia and Celis were discussing the topic of remarrying, the suitor himself standing right there. And Celis offered those same questions. What about Michael Dukas? Eudokia turned to the stairs confidently and said something to the effect of, well, let's go ask him then. She started upstairs to Michael's bedroom, opened the door, and woke the young man up, Celis trailing close behind. When Michael's eyes opened, his mother stood over him and said simply that she'd found a man to marry and that Michael should come downstairs and greet his new dad. Sleepily, Michael stood and attempted to collect his thoughts, but said nothing. Eudokia went on without paying his confusion any mind at all, and she led the two men downstairs where a mysterious character named, that's right, Romanus Diogenes was standing, waiting. Michael Dukas and Romanus Diogenes, said Carr, quote, embraced, though Celis observed that Michael was totally expressionless and without any apparent feeling, end quote. Now fast forward to January 1st, 1068. Having already remarried months earlier, Empress Eudokia, in tandem with, patriarch, with the Patriarch of Constantinople, who acquiesced for some reason, led the proceedings to officially crown Romanus Diogenes as Emperor Romanus IV. Now Eudokia was clear about her intention. She told him that should he marry, marry her and assume the role of emperor, he would have to also accept a second-in-command position in the hierarchy, mind you. If he did that, then she would halt her current order to have him killed for his conspiratorial crimes. Yeah, she had already ordered his death, and it was up to him to make sure she doesn't do that. The guy really didn't have a choice. He couldn't even choose to stay in exile. It was either marry Eudokia or be killed on the spot. Oh, did I mention that Eudokia found him stunningly, breathtakingly, unrelentingly beautiful? Yeah, there was something else. Um, Romanus Diogenes, when Eudokia gave him that ultimatum, um, well, he was a married man. But Eudokia argued to the senior clergy in the Hagia Sophia, well, this was official imperial business, of course. This wasn't for Eudokia. This was for the empire. Come on. Just annul the marriage already. Let her marry this hot pole of man chicken, you know, for the empire. And they agreed. Now, as for Celis, Carr tells us, quote, And Celis found someone whom he could willingly despise, end quote. For Celis, he was exactly the outsider that he had tried to maneuver against while his best friend lay dying months earlier. Now, after the pleasantries and the honeymoon were over, a visible change overcame Romanus IV. He outwardly showed his bitterness at his place in the hierarchy, and he began vocally challenging Eudokia's authority, as well as just being outright rude and dismissive of her. Carr writes, quote, As for Romanus, he almost certainly yearned to emerge from Eudokia's shadow and make a manly name for himself, end quote. In fact, before the winter of 1068 was over and the spring flowers bloomed, it was crystal clear that Romanus IV was the emperor and Eudokia was once again cast to second. Now, by midsummer, Eudokia had, for all intents and purposes, 
been relegated to her former role as Augusta, the wife of the emperor, though she still retained her title of empress. It was nothing more than that, though. It was just a title. She had been cast aside. Now, over the course of the next two years, from 1068 to 1070, Eudokia would bear Romanus IV two sons, named Nikephorus and Leo, who would grow up to serve a future emperor. However, to appease his new wife, Romanus IV allowed, surprisingly, a younger son of Eudokia and Constantine X, named Andronicus Ducas, to become co-emperor. But Andronicus was immediately stripped of any real authority. By mid-1068, there was no question who was leading the empire. It was Romanus IV, and it was only Romanus IV. And he was itching to prove it to all around, especially the doubters, like Michael Sellis, who still held a chief role below the emperor, but only because he was attached to Eudokia and the Dukai, and he could only fight one battle at a time as he yanked each strand of power away from the Dukai family. Luckily for Romanus, Alp Arslan was re-engaging Byzantine farmers and towns south of Caesarea, effectively trying to cut a gigantic chunk out of Anatolia and claim it as Seljuk territory. This was exactly the kind of thing he could leverage to prove his point, that he was the sole ruler of the empire, the military leader his fellow officers had dreamed about, and almost had with Isaac I. To show the empire he could deliver on the battlefield was the single quickest way to his people's hearts. If he fought and defended the borders, they will love him unconditionally and indefinitely. When approached for advice, Celis urged Romanus to wait, to prove it on the battlefield, to slowly prepare for a potential showdown to assess the Byzantine army fully before running headlong into battle. To which Romanus, with his new attitude, ignored him completely. The emperor suited up, brandishing a long spear and a shield, and in the fall of 1068, the emperor led his forces out of Constantinople and towards central Anatolia, toward the raised city of Caesarea, now suffering under Turkish rule. As the Byzantine military had been neglected and ridiculed for decades, excepting, of course, the small blip in which Isaac I showed it a a little much needed TLC. And the Roman, excuse me, and the forces Romanus led were less Byzantine and more mercenary, including large contingents of Macedonians, Pechenegs, Franks, Normans, and various communities of Anatolian men who called the borderland home. As you can imagine, there was very little discipline among the ranks, but Romanus felt that that was simple minded approach to warfare, especially against some country bumpkins from Central Asia. So we leave Romanus IV leading a ragtag and underappreciated and underfunded army across the high plateaus of Anatolia to meet his destiny. We'll find out how Romanus IV, a legitimately skilled warrior in general, fared against the growing power of the mighty Seljuk Turks. And we'll do that on the next episode. I can't wait to tell you about it. Music